0: Hey y'all, welcome to the Five Lives Podcast. I'm Alexis Klein.
1: And I'm Ellie Rabinack.
0: Here at Five Lives, we believe everyone has a story. So on our podcast, we invite people to come on and share their life story with us.
1: Rachel Delarosa Rosa is an incredible woman. She comes from an immigrant family in California. She was surrounded by abuse, alcoholism, poverty. She's a true miracle. We're so excited to have her with us today. Welcome Rachel Delarosa. Rosa.
2: Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. What a privilege to be here and to take part in sharing uh, part of my story. Uh, What an honor. Thank you guys for inviting me.
0: Rachel, so our first question for you is really about your background. If you could just familiarize our audience with um, where you're from, a little bit about your family life, what life was like as a teenager into adulthood. Just give us some insight into that.
2: Sure. Um, So originally, I'm from Southern California. I grew up um, in this little town called Indio, California, kind of in the Palm Springs area. Um, My parents are from Mexico, um, and my parents were migrant farm workers, and so they came across Mexico, you know, across Texas and Arizona and landed in in the desert of California. And so um, that's where where my parents come from. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood um, called Pin West which is a barrio it's a it's a gang uh, infested area neighborhood so I'm the youngest of nine uh, I have six brothers and two sisters and um, you know life was life was difficult for us growing up um, my parents uh, they both worked hard um, but it, it wasn't they weren't working hard to put stuff in our hands uh, it was they were working hard to put food on the table and so uh, growing up, life was a struggle. Um, my dad was a severe alcoholic and so he would uh, often uh, you know, manifest that in, a, in an abusive way towards my mom. Um, sometimes I'd see him, uh, um, you know, I'd witness him beating on my mom one time. Uh, I, I can remember as a little girl um, my dad pushing my mom down and uh, grabbing a knife and putting a knife to her throat. Um, and so that was a very, very traumatic experience uh, for us. Um, I also had brothers that were in gangs. Um, you know, we lived in a neighborhood where there was, uh, we, it was notorious, we called it, there's one way in and no way out. Um, and so there was a lot of gang rivalry. I can remember as a child having to hit the floor sometimes when you'd hear the bullets outside. We were trained to do that, um, to lay down in the hall so that we wouldn't get hit by bullets. You know, I've had um, a brother that's been shot. Another brother that's been stabbed. I have another brother that spent the majority of his life in prison. Um, you know, I've I have some siblings that are still struggling with addiction, uh, all these years later. Um, and so, you know, life was hard. Life was life was not easy for us. Um, you know, and it it became a, It became a. a I was witnessing uh this reproduction. Uh, you know, the alcoholism that was in my dad. I, I became, became to I began to notice it in my siblings and as they began to partake of, you know, um the drugs and the alcohol and even the anger that would be manifested in their life. Like it was in my dad and then I would see it repeated in my brothers and um and and so you know, that cycle began to take place in my very own life. And so, um, when I was 13 years old, um, I just, you know, just haven't experienced the life that I had and, and, and the abuse and the, the, you know, everything, the chaos that was going on in my home. I really wanted a place of escape. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't know how to, how to get to that. And so I started running the streets at the age of 13. Um, I started drinking at the age of 13. At first it would be just you know, on the weekends or you know, whenever I would hang out with my friends. Um, but it wasn't long. Uh, by the time I was in high school, um, I was a full-fledged alcoholic. Uh, I would skip class. I would you know, get alcohol however I could. And so um, you know, I began to be the very things that, that I was witnessing happening in my family. What, what was
1: maybe the root? Like you're saying, mm-hmm. at 13 you started drinking or whatever. Was it, was it really to be cool? Or was it because you had a lot of anger mm-hmm. inside of you? Or fear? Or what, do you, what would you say started leading you down that road?
2: I think what was happening for me as a child was that I was watching, um, I was watching how um, my siblings and, and my dad especially, um, how they would cope with the situations, you know, most of our most of our situations came from, you know, being in poverty and all the things that come along with that—not having enough, worrying about bills, worrying about, you know, the next meal on the table—and um, so I think that that even today, if you if you look at the our inner cities, if you look at poverty. Um, if you look at indian reservations like alcoholism is a, is a major um, problem in those situations and i think that um, if you've if you've ever if you've been in that background or you are familiar with that you know the, the drugs and the alcohol they just they they bring relief for a temporary moment and i saw that in my parents i saw that in not, not my mom i saw that in my dad i saw that in my brothers and and it was transforming them from one state to another. And I thought, let me try that. Let me try, it. what is it that, that, that they're enjoying so much that maybe can help me through this situation? And so I think I began, to, I began to drink and I began to feel that kind of feeling of I'm not in this situation anymore. I don't have to feel it. I don't have to live it. I can just be over here. And obviously, and of course, Uh, you know, when the buzz wears off, the situation hasn't changed. And so that just takes you into the tailspin of needing more and wanting more. And so the cycle began for me at that early age.
0: So where was God in all of this in your family? Um, Did your parents have faith? Was God talked about at all in your household?
2: So we... um, grew up Catholic um, we would uh, we'd have to walk a couple of miles to church um, every Sunday my mom without fail would tell all of us uh, to church and um, and you know my mom had a Bible um, one of those big family Bibles and um, you know she kept it on her nightstand and um, so my experience with God was um, Attending this uh, this mass on Sundays, but not understanding really what the preacher was saying. Probably my um, probably my biggest memory of all of my Catholicism was seeing that there was this man nailed to a cross. You know, in Catholic churches, you'll have the big crucifix and Jesus, you know, uh, suffering. In that, in that position. And uh, I, I distinctly remember thinking, you know, poor man, and having no clue as to why that man was on the cross and why he had that suffering look on his face. And I just never understood it. And so at the age of 13, um, my mom separated from my dad and um, I got sent to live with my brother and that was another thing that that happened to me specifically is uh, I began to be, I became unparented because my brother worked at night and so I was free to do whatever I wanted to do Um, and so at 13 I stopped going to church because I wasn't, I was no longer under my mom's supervision and I didn't have to, I didn't have to go and so my Catholic experience ended at age of 13 as well.
0: Okay, so Rachel, can you kind of walk us through from being 13 years old to um, going through the rest of high school? What did that look like being raised by your brother and being so young?
2: You know, one of the things that my mom did for me in in trying to help and protect me from the environment that we lived in was at a very young age. She... Um, Signed me up for basketball. I think I was maybe five or six years old, and I would started going to basketball camp. And so, I began, I became very good at basketball. And so, at the age of um, fourteen, when I went into high school, um, I was a pretty good player, and you know, started getting uh, letters from colleges just saying that they were interested, and you know, in the future maybe they, you know, would contact me and. Um, So as my basketball career progressed uh, in high school um, you know I I wasn't a good student at all. I was drinking all the time. I would cut class. uh, But because I was such a good basketball player um, my teachers would pass me. And so um, that's one of the things that that as I look back I I think it was a real injustice in my life is um, not having the opportunity. Um, to make the most of my education. Now my parents' um, education was not a priority. It was important but it wasn't at the top of the list because of just everything else that we had going on in our family. Um, absolutely we, we needed to go to school and we needed to do you know well in you know not not get any bad reports from the teachers. Um, but as far as casting vision for my life and maybe maybe your education or maybe this basketball scholarship can get you out of this. Uh, That was something that was never brought up in our family. Um, I don't know if it's just because, um, you know, like I said, it was just not at the top of their list uh, because they didn't know any better. Both my parents uh, were undereducated. My mom has a third grade, um, you know, education. Uh, And so uh, it became, you know, just another opportunity um, for me that, that I lost. Uh, When um, I became a senior in high school I hurt my back and so the college offers you know were off the table. I went to a junior college and started playing basketball again and did pretty well and got a a couple of college offers um, but because I was so um, I was so addicted to the alcohol like I didn't want to leave that life to go start another life that I didn't know and so I just turned the scholarship down.
1: So then what happened after that? Once you turned the scholarship down what did you decide to do at that point?
2: Once I turned the scholarship down um, really I didn't I had no direction in my life. Um, I went to school because I played basketball and so once I stopped playing basketball you know I had no desire to get a degree or you know the further my education it just It just never crossed my mind and so i stopped going to school and i got a job uh, moved to los angeles and started uh, working for a company in los angeles
0: okay so at this point you're 21 years old you're in los angeles a city you've never been in before um what happens after this where what kind of job did you get what kind of direction did you see your life going or at that point was it just a daily trying to get by
2: So when I got to Los Angeles, I really had I I went to Los Angeles because I didn't have anywhere else to go. Uh, I didn't know what to do with my life. Um, My sister was living in Los Angeles, so I moved there. She got me a job working at an insurance company, um, which was fine, but it was really you know just pushing papers, and so I didn't find any life in it. Um, But what I did get was a paycheck, and every paycheck that I got went to drinking. Smoking pot, and that's how how my life was spent. So I met this guy, um, and uh, within a month we were living together, and we'd moved in together. And uh, you know he was a, he had a good job. He was an electrician, made a lot of money. Um, but it wasn't long before I found out that uh, that he was addicted to crack cocaine, um, and so um, you know we spent. Most of our money on drugs and alcohol and all of that, and so soon um, after not paying our rent and not paying our light bill, not paying our utilities, um, you know, trouble came quickly. Um, and so um, one day uh, I got a phone call, and it was my boyfriend. He was calling from jail, and he said, "Hey, I got arrested um, for trying to buy crack cocaine from a cop." He said, do you have any money? And I said, well, we have the little bit that we were going to give towards the rent. And he said, come bail me out and then we'll make it work. And so um, I did just that. Uh, I spent the last $600 that that we had uh, on bailing him out and, you know, came home. Next morning, he was gone. He left and uh, didn't know where he had gone. And so... And that really, that day, became uh, the dark night of my soul. I had an eviction notice on my door. Um, Our electricity had been cut off. We had no food. And uh, that night, I remember thinking, I have become what I've been trying to run away from my whole life. That cycle that I saw um, repeated in my family um, was now me. And so, I distinctly remember thinking, I don't want to live anymore. I don't have a purpose for living. You know, it was, it was a night of just hopelessness and desperation. Um, it was literal darkness because we had no power. And I just um, laid on the floor and cried uh, because I really just wanted to end my life. Then suddenly, I said, God, if you're real, I need you to help me right now because I don't want to live anymore. And I remember that someone had given me a Bible and I had tucked it away in my closet. I'd never opened it, but that night I went over, picked the Bible up, and I just held on to it. And I said, God, help me. I don't want to live anymore. And in that darkness, I began to feel hope. Like the darkness literally started to lift off of my shoulders and what I now know was the Spirit of God speaking and breathing life into me because he had a purpose for me and I just didn't know it. And so he began to minister to me there in that darkness, in the middle of my eviction, in the middle of my um, abandonment, when my boyfriend had abandoned me. When I found myself literally with nothing about to be kicked out on the street. i had even gone as far as trying to look for something to eat in the house. And the only thing that I could find was a leftover hamburger that we had thrown away the night before. And when I went into that trash can, that's when it hit me that I had come to the end of myself and that I no longer wanted to be in this world. But God came down that night, and He visited me, and He breathed hope into me. And it was maybe a few hours of crying and wrestling and talking to God and Him breathing life into me until I could pick myself back up. I believe that that was the day that I had an encounter with the Almighty God who said, I have a life for you, I have a purpose for you.
1: So my question to you is, what did you do the next morning? Obviously, I'm assuming you stayed in that, in that place at least for mm-hmm. a night. And when the morning came, what was your next step?
2: So when the next morning came, I, nothing had changed. I still had the eviction notice. I still had no power in my house. And I also had an appointment for physical therapy because I had injured uh, my back. And I would go to physical therapy that next morning. And my therapist, unbeknownst to me, is a Christian. And she says, Rachel, so good to see you. I go in and uh, and she says, how are you doing today? And I said, out of my mouth shot, uh, I'm still living in sin, but I guess I'm doing okay. And she said these words to me. Well, at least you recognize it, and that's a start. And when those words left her mouth, the conviction of the holy spirit came on me and i thought what have i been doing with my life and she invited me to church went to church and it was at that sunday church service that i made you know the proclamation in public that uh, i was giving my life to christ and that he was going to be my lord and savior
1: that's incredible that's absolutely
2: as i look back um, there was a family who didn't know me uh, just came up and introduced themselves to me and i said listen i i i um i don't have a place to live and they said come you can stay with us and i slept on their couch um, for a few weeks and then um, and then they built their garage out for an apartment for me and i became part of their family um She became a mentor to me and she still is very dear, dear to my heart, Um, Susan who lives out in California. um, Really just, uh, you know, the Bible says that God uh, puts the lonely into family. And even though I had a, a family in the natural, there was such loneliness in me because of um, you know, everybody in my family was trying to protect themselves and trying to do the best that they could. Um, but as a child, and as the youngest of nine, I found myself to be this lonely little girl, just hiding. You know, trying, trying her best to, uh, to not be hurt uh, by the world. And um, but, but God, but God came in, and when I gave my life to Him, He scooped me up, and He said, "Here, I'm going to show you what family is like." I planned on getting water baptized, and so I called my mom up and called my sister up and said, Hey, I'm, I've got, given my life to Jesus, and I'm going to get baptized. And so my family made the drive up, you know, two and a half hours to come to my water baptism. Okay. Um, and the incredible part of, of that is, you know, over the years, um, God has just really restored um, my heart towards my family, uh, you know, uh, there was always a disconnect because, again, we were all just trying to live our own life and, you know, deal with our own struggle. And so there was there was brokenness and there was separation um, in our family. Um, but as God began to minister and heal me, I knew that he was calling me to reach out uh, to my dad who had, uh, you know, been so angry and so abusive um, and, and, uh, and so mean. Um, and to my mom, who just I just you know just distanced myself from her, and so God began to mend those relationships. And I can remember, um, you know, calling my dad and just uh, just having a genuine love of God for him, and and a hope that uh, that one day that he would experience the salvation and the freedom that I had. Uh, my dad has since passed, and um, you know he he began to soften uh, at the latter part of his life. Um, you know, I gave him a Bible and I, you know, would talk to him about the Lord. And um, at his funeral, when the pastor, at his grave site, uh, his, pa- you know, the pastor made an altar call and 20 people gave their lives to the oh Lord my at goodness. my dad's funeral. My so talk about the redemption God's of God. Redemption for sure.
0: Yeah. How did you get from God show me your real to, um, okay, God, my life's a blank page. Okay. Now you end up in inner city ministry in New Orleans.
2: Um, When Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, um, I just felt compelled by watching the news. I felt compelled to come down to New Orleans and help. Um, I didn't know anybody in the city. I just drove down here with some friends, got a phone call, and they said, hey, there's this church that's handing out food. I think they might need help. pulled up. And I got introduced to my friend, Deborah Hoffman, who's now my friend, Deborah Hoffman, who was managing the relief work. And uh, she and I met that day, um, and we just began to talk about the poor and the need in the city. Um, and then God led us into this community called Hollygrove. There was this eerie quietness, which, you know, I'll just equate to death because there, you could hear no birds, no cars, no children, nothing, it was just this eerie sound of quietness. Um, as people came back, you know, uh, you know, it was exciting to provide them with a plate of food and a drink of water, um, but really to look into their faces and see the devastation and the hopelessness um, that they were living because they had just lost everything um, and they didn't know where their hope was coming from. I distinctly remember one time meeting uh, this elderly couple who were sitting on their steps and we drove by and we gave them some food and water. And uh, we said, how's it going? And they said, well, I think we're just, we're gonna give up. We're just gonna, it's too much work. We're just, we can't do it. We, we can't do it. They were driving in about an hour and a half in the morning and then working and then going back home an hour and a half or wherever they were staying. Um, And so we prayed with them, like we just sat there and just prayed that God would give them strength, um, that God would give them what they need um, in that moment. And, um, you know, they—they even talking to them today, Bob has passed away, but Charlotte is a dear friend of ours in the community. And she will pinpoint to that day where she says that was the dark night of her soul, where her and her husband were ready to give up and the people of God came wow. and not just gave them something tangible, but really gave them mm-hmm. hope um, when we prayed for him, them that, that day.
1: Wow. So I have a question for you um, moving forward. You um, have not really told the story of uh, where you are today with Jesus Project. This is no small, um, it, th- this is a major, this has become a major um, influence in the city of New Orleans in particular Holly Grove so I'd like you to tell the people that are listening um, what exactly you and Deborah Hoffman you all are co-founders what you all are doing presently and um, if you could also uh, tell us is there one particular story or one particular individual a child that you guys have worked with because your ministry primarily is to to children um, can you tell us one story about a child who has um, incredibly impacted your
2: life you know a billion stories that we can share um, um, some of them tragic and some some of them are you know victorious um, and some of them are kind of still hanging in the balance um, just recently we had one of the girls in our program um, she came home from school um, she came in Uh, to the tutoring center and we were just doing homework and all of a sudden we hear an ambulance outside and so I poke my head and the ambulance is on the next block at her house and so we go over and she picks up her backpack and um, is talking with Deborah, and says, "Um, you know, that's probably my mom And, and Deborah says, well, what's going on with your mom? She said, I don't know. She was passed out when I left. Um, and so when we get there um, they work on her um, for a really long time and are unsuccessful in reviving her and so her mom passes away that night um, and it was it was really um, it was really sobering uh, when we realized that um, when she walked at, when she got home from school and saw her mom passed out she was actually watching her mom in the process of death, and she didn't know it. Um, and then, when we returned to her home and they pronounced her dead, um, you know, she was the daughter was in the house. And um, is a very tragic story um, when, um, you know, we realize that there's, you know, there's lack in the home, and, you know, the doors have just opened up to us, and we began to see what her life was really like. Um, uh, it, it was it was it, it was a little devastating. Um, she, she since has moved uh, to another state with family members, um, and I, I don't know that she's in a very different situation that she, than she was in uh, when she was here. Um, but she was part of our program. Uh, you know, she was part of our discipleship program, and we just believe that those seeds that God uh, that God was planting while she was here are gonna are gonna grow.
0: So I would like for you to share just a couple minutes about the program that's y'all's newest, which is my favorite, called J Um It's really, like you said, a discipleship program. It's completely separate from the summer camp and from the after-school tutoring. And it's, it's really been the young kids who are familiar with the program and kind of grew up with you guys are now teenagers.
2: So a couple of years ago, um, our kids started to grow up, imagine that, and so they became teenagers. And so um, uh, we loved having uh, them come to our door and wanting wanting to participate in what we were doing. We just were not equipped uh, to manage um, 14, 15, and 16-year-olds. And so it really created a problem until we sought God on it, and God said, this is what I want you to do. And um, what he wanted us to do is uh, we created this program called uh, Junior Student Training and Equipping Program, uh, JSTEP for short. And what we do is we uh, take the 13, 14, 15 year olds and part of our program, and they have to come to a one month training. They come uh, a couple of days a week and they receive discipleship uh, you know, training on how to talk to people, how to introduce yourself to people. Uh, you know some really basic things and then if they successfully complete that one month program then in the second part of the program they'll help us actually run our summer camp and so they become junior counselors and they'll receive uh, a stipend for that um, this year is our, our, we're going into our third year of JSTEP and we—we uh, we ha- it has become a year-long program and so we meet with them uh, every Saturday morning. It's amazing to see these kids get up in the morning uh, and to come meet with us and to come meet with God and hear about what's going on, uh, you know, for us to hear what's going on in their lives. And so we've really had uh, just an inroad with this age group and really have seen, are seeing lives transformed. Um, one particular kid who came into the neighborhood um, after his mother had passed and he moved in with his sister. Um, when he moved there, he was uh, you know, in depression, he didn't want to live, he wanted to commit suicide, he was being bullied at school, he was being bullied in the neighborhood. Um, but he kept coming to our summer camp program and, uh, and as he tells the story uh, you know, to Deborah, when Deborah asked him, when did you get saved? He said, well, with you guys, of course. Um, I gave my life to Jesus when I met you guys and uh, he has um, he's really just such a great young man um, God took him out of that depression and started to speak life to him he loves to read the Bible he'll be on Instagram and he'll uh, you know someone will say you know I'm depressed I want to kill myself and he'll begin to minister to them he'll begin to give them scriptures and uh, you know talk them you know into not killing themselves and really sharing the gospel. Um, He also, you know, every day he comes in, he gives us a hug and he wants to tell us about his day. He wants to tell us about all about what's going on in his life and, you know, this summer he got water baptized and uh, he came to us afterwards and he said, I really don't know where my life would be without you guys. And so that really is a huge blessing to us. Um, Of course, it's nothing that we're doing, it's really It's really the hands of God and the heart of God reaching out to Him. And much like me saying, you know, I have a purpose and a plan for you. And it's not to kill yourself. It's My plan is to give you a future and a hope. And so we love seeing that in our youth. You know, the amazing thing, I just want to say this, is that, you know, um, gosh, you know, I think that, in in the Christian world, um, you know, we send our kids to Sunday school and we'll teach them a nice little song and they'll color a nice little coloring sheet, Um, you know, but the Bible says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and the enemy is not, you know, playing games with our children. The enemy is on full attack, you know, to steal, kill, and destroy our youth and even our kids. If you read anything about you know uh, you know the the sex trafficking and the pornography and uh, you know just the drugs and here in New Orleans uh, the crime that is occurring at such a young age that is the devil on full attack mode and as the body of Christ we really have to equip not just our youth not not just our our, our adult you know believers but we really have to start seriously considering arming our Children with the Word of God, and, and and realizing that they're not too too young to understand what God is. They're not too young to understand the difference between darkness and light, and that they have weapons, and they have, uh, and I'm talking spiritual weapons, and they have the Word of God, and they have, uh, you know, they have the power to overcome all these things that are happening in their lives and their surroundings.
1: You are you are setting them on fire. You know, you're setting them on the right track to to be um to be everything that that potentially they can be. Amen. And so we're
0: just so thankful for having you Rachel. Your story is incredible. Girl, you are a miracle. We can't thank you enough for coming to share your story. It's incredible. I mean just to just to think about how short of a time I've known you and to see the hand of God just from all the way back then yeah. kind of bring you down here to our city and you and I become fast friends and um, and to see this program grow and to see these kids grow up is really mind blowing. Just, just to watch, you know, they used to be so small and now they have mustaches <laughs> and you're like, what's going on? Um, but you can really, you can see the joy that these kids have yeah. in feeling affirmed and feeling believed in um, and doing something about that. You know, it goes beyond just, oh, I know I'm special, but these kids actively pursue leadership and we have outreaches now and they're in charge of certain parts of yes. the outreaches that used to be the thing that they would get the the free gift and now they're giving back to the community and yes. I think what's so cool is that the kids in that community it's it's transitioning from they're watching out of town volunteers come and spread the gospel or spread help and now it's kids within the community who have grown up through this program are now giving back to that very community. So for the younger kids watching, that's now their their measuring stick Amen. and their role model, which is amazing to think what that's going to look like in that neighborhood 20 years from now. Amen. I mean, across the street from your ministry now, there's a great little bakery um, that's well known all over the city. The neighborhood is safe and clean and it's enjoyable to be there. People my age are buying property over there and it's really something to behold. It's, it's amazing.
2: Glory to God. Glory to God. Thank you, Rachel, so much. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you, guys.
0: If you're interested in learning more about Jesus Project Ministries and how you can be a part, visit jesusprojectministries.com. Thanks for listening to the Five Lives Podcast. This has been a production of Five Lives Ministries. Any attempt to sell, distribute, or reproduce this content without the express written permission from Five Lives and its speakers is prohibited by law. Five lives. Everyone has a story. Copyright 2020.